Please open your Bibles to John chapter 3. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. The Bible's definition of preaching. John chapter 3, I read to you the first 13 verses. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel? And knowest not these things. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Amen and amen. Verse 1. A learned elder of Zion arranged for a private meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're there with them by virtue of this exchange being recorded in the Word of God. He came to Jesus by night and acknowledged using a plural pronoun for other Pharisees with him and leaders of the Jews, that no man could do the miracles that Jesus did unless he had a divine mission. Jesus responds by saying that in his religion, men need to be born again. All he uses is the metaphor of birth and applies it to being done a second time, what we call the second birth, what we call the new birth, what we call being born again as the words Jesus used. Nicodemus responds naturalistically, literally, by asking how can a man do that when he's old? Does he go back into his mother's womb and get born a second time? Jesus answered no and explained the word born again by describing it this time as being born of water and the spirit. Both meaning the same thing, He needs a spiritual birth. No, Nicodemus, he doesn't need to be born naturally the second time, as you have suggested. He needs to have a spiritual birth. 
And then we get to verse 6, where Jesus goes back to what Nicodemus said, verse 4, and tells him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. If you were to be born of your mother ten times, you'd still be flesh. That wouldn't help you at all. That which is born of the Holy Spirit of God is what makes a man spiritual and necessary to see and enter the kingdom of God. Verse 5, very briefly, it is explaining the again of verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus said, except a man be born again. In verse 5, Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Verse 3 is a natural, is, is just the word birth being used, and again, implying that there is some other kind of birth necessary, but that birth is explained rather plainly in the fifth verse by being described under first the metaphor of water and then the name of the Holy Ghost. The most important thing to remember from verse 5 that we never want to fail at remembering is baptism is not in the verse. The most important thing to remember is that there is no baptism intended by the word water in John 3, 5. Baptism is not what regenerates a man. That heresy is called baptismal regeneration. We reject it and deny it, and our ancestors in the faith have died for rejecting that heresy. That heresy came out of the Roman Catholic Church and the early church fathers for various reasons. And last Lord's Day, I showed you the legion of heresies that result from making that fatal presumption on the text that is not taught. Though there be several hangman's nooses throughout the rest of the New Testament for those that don't pay careful attention to what they're reading. There are verses that sound like baptism saves, but when the whole counsel of God is taken together, that heresy is overthrown. Remember that. We don't have time to spend on it today because we spent that time last Sunday. There's no baptism in the water of John 3, 5. A man has to be born again in order to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and a man has to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be baptized. So baptism comes far too late to help a man get born again. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience. A good conscience means that a man's already been born again and understands the gospel. There is no natural birth in 3.5 either, which shouldn't take that much effort, and there shouldn't be too many running to that idea, but let me give you 10 reasons why we don't believe it just in case you missed it last Sunday. Number one, it says born of water, and by comparing it to being born of the Spirit, that means that the water is the causative agent of the birth. And amniotic fluid is not the causative agent of a birth. It's an impediment to it. We are not born by water. That water around us protecting us in the womb does not assist birth, but hinders it. And you can't be born until it's out of the way. If you know of an exception, thank you for proving my rule. Further, once in a while, the sack comes out with the baby. But you know what once in a while means? Very rarely. Furthermore, by taking such a view, this is number three, are all aborted children then reprobates? Number four, Jesus in this very book, just four chapters later, defines water as a symbol for the Spirit. Five, 
the verse is only a repetitive construction referring to the Holy Spirit twice. You say, I don't like that. Well, by the time you get to it in John 3, you've already used two repetitions twice. Verily, verily. Thank you. You're welcome. Abba, Father. Before you can get to verse 5 in John 3, you've already used verily twice. Doubled to you twice. Remember that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, no one else uses a verily, verily in the entire Bible except John. And he starts off right here getting you used to the idea so that when you get to verse 5, you're not troubled. Six, there are more uses of water for spirit in the Old Testament, which Nicodemus would have been familiar with, where water is very carefully defined as a metaphor and symbol of the coming Holy Spirit. That's Isaiah 44 and Ezekiel 36. Seven, a nearly identical repetition is in Titus 3.5, where it's washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost for one operation by the Holy Spirit. Eight, there is only one event in both places, but there's the agent of water in John 3.5, there's the action of washing in Titus 3.5, and in both places you then have the Holy Spirit named. Ten, let's see, number nine, some might ask about the word and, but it has the word and between water and birth, and typically means another one, or in addition, or alongside, or beside, or with. Yes, ordinarily and does that, but not all the time in the Bible. The Greek conjunction, K, that is translated 8,000 times and, is translated 108 times even. And I hate even saying that to you because it's worthless information because with your English Bible, I can show you that there are a number of cases in the epistles of Paul where God is referred to this way, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in an equal number of cases, the God, even the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, showing us that and and even may be synonyms. So if you need that help, and all this other evidence is insufficient, then read it this way. Except a man be born of water, even of the Spirit. And some King James Bibles that are seeking to explain the text have in their center column reference that little explanation itself. Number 10, when we look to commentators and our fathers in the faith in the past, None of them ever even thought of amniotic fluid and that birth water being in the text at all. Rather than question or resent a double reference to the Holy Spirit, let's embrace the double reference to the Holy Spirit, like you would in Titus 3.5. Now, you've never come up and suggested in Titus 3.5 that there's a bath or a shower or a swimming pool or a garden hose or a washcloth, or anything, but it says the washing of regeneration. But you've never done that there. You just take the two and embrace it. This wonderful operation of God the Holy Spirit is called a washing and a renewing. And both are true. He has cleansed us and given us a new nature in us by the creative power of God. And let's embrace that. Our quickening into life is by the Holy Spirit. 
We are told in Ephesians chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit exerted a power upon us that He also applied to the Lord Jesus Christ to raise His dead body from the grave. In 1 Peter 3.18, we're told that Jesus Christ's body was quickened. Is that the word we want in Ephesians 1 and 2? Yes. That Jesus Christ's body was quickened by the Spirit. The Spirit is the regenerative cause and agent in our being born again. And so it's doubled to us. And see, it's a, Nick, it's a ruler of the Jews sitting there. Do you think he had ever read Isaiah 44? Do you think he had read Isaiah 36? Let me ask it this way. Do you think that Nicodemus had read Isaiah 44 more often than you have? Do you think that Nicodemus had read Ezekiel 36 more than you have? Do you think that Isaiah 44, that Nicodemus understood Isaiah 44 better than you did when you read it? And Ezekiel 36, of course. They knew that symbology there in the Old Testament that the prophets had given them. Let's embrace the fact. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, always keeping your finger at John 3. Let's take a quick peek at 1 Corinthians 12 to rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit and the difference that the Spirit makes in men. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Wherefore, I give you to understand. The Apostle Paul is wanting to give us something that we should understand. That no man speaking by the Spirit of God, calleth Jesus accursed. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Lots of people say Lord, and lots of people say Jesus is Lord, and lots of people have bumper stickers on their cars that Jesus is Lord, but no one can say it or put the bumper sticker on and mean it sincerely from a changed nature without the power of the Holy Spirit being involved. Verse 11. All these, now a whole list of gifts have been described in verses 7 through 11. Notice verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit. God, in these times, manifested the fact that you had the Spirit of God in you by gifts He gave. And it goes on to list the word of, verse 8, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, I'm down to verse 10, prophecy, discerning of spirits, divers' tongues, interpretation of tongues. Now look at verse 11. But all these worketh that one and the self-same spirit. There is only one. Though there are different operations, different manifestations, at different times, there is only one Holy Spirit of God dividing to every man severally as he will. Yes, I want to embrace the fact that we're born of water and of the Spirit, a doubling of emphasis to us about the important role of the Holy Spirit of the living God. He is one and the self-same Spirit, and He's able to operate in all of our lives separately, severally, blessing us by His presence. You do not need to depend upon the Holy Spirit's operation in this church for His operation in you. And this church doesn't depend upon the Holy Spirit's operation in it by your carnal living. The Holy Spirit will eventually get rid of you and preserve His church. Embrace this fact. And what this causes us to do is to see the important role of the Holy Spirit in regenerating us so that when the Bible says, if we live in the Spirit, 
That means Galatians chapter 5, we've been born again because we have spiritual life. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let's do what the Spirit wants us to do. Let's work out that salvation that the Holy Spirit has worked in us in the new man that we have. He cannot enter in to the kingdom of God. Are you born again? Do you see the kingdom? Do you know that there is a ruling king over this universe? Did we have Henry the Hermit or Harry the Harry or something? What was it? Hermine? Is there some sort of some little sprinkling going on down there in the Gulf that came across Florida and is working its way up the coast? And because they don't have anything better to talk about or write about, we have to listen to their nonsense? The Holy Spirit is in charge of all those things. They're all doing the will of God. Listen, if you live on the coast, and you live on the coast of Florida, or you live on the Atlantic coast, guess what? It's expected. So why are you whining? I thought yesterday was the most beautiful day we've had in three months. The temperature, the humidity, and the sunshine was just spectacular. Thank you, Lord. A couple of weeks ago, our man from Florida got up in this pulpit and used Psalm 148, and verse 8 says, stormy winds fulfilling his word. (laughs) That is just perfect. We look at a storm and say, that baby's out of control. Oh, no, no. You should look at me and say he's out of control. But the Lord's in control. And I look at you and say the same thing. But the Lord's in control of all those things. Let's embrace this spirit. If we live in him, let's walk in him. Do we see the king? The Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Christ twice in the Bible. Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4. Is that spirit in you? Do you see the king? Do you love the king? Do you live like you have a king? Does it look to others like there's a king in your life because you walk differently than other men walk? Lord, help us. That is the important point. Instead of worrying about amniotic fluid or instead of worrying about baptism or anything else, let's worry, do we look like we're in the kingdom? Verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus here in verse 6 isn't explaining that there's two births in verse 5. He's addressing Nicodemus's failure to realize that there needs to be a spiritual birth by pointing out, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. If you get back inside your mother, it's not going to do any good. I think I've said it once already, to be born ten times of my mother isn't going to make me a better Johnny. I must be born again, and you must be born again, so don't smile too widely at your pastor. Jesus is referring back to verse 4, where Nicodemus raised the natural birth, and he is saying, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. I'm not talking about another flesh birth. I'm not talking about repeating that which was totally ineffectual. Because the result of being born to two fleshly parents is that you're flesh. That means you're a natural man. Being born just to flesh parents only results in a natural offspring. A man in the flesh. It's the contrast of the two births in verse 6 
verse 4 and verse 5 that we want to keep in mind as we're looking at the Lord's words to us in this sixth verse. The fleshly birth by two flesh parents produces a child with only a flesh nature. And we need much more than a flesh nature. The words born of the flesh is a natural birth of bones and meat by a woman. The words is flesh describes the spiritual condition of a flesh and bone man. That's all we have by our first birth. By our first birth, we are what was explained to us from Psalm 53 a few minutes ago. We are corrupt and filthy from top to bottom. We have done abominable works, and there is none that doeth good, no, not one, doubled to you again. Did you, were you offended by that? No, not one. There is none that doeth good was stated twice in that passage. Should we mark the Lord down for redundancy? Or should we mark the word of God up that we need to understand that what appears to be good to us is not good to God? When the Bible says there is none that doeth good, no, not one, that goes contrary to everything we're told about wonderful Americans. The goodness of man, the goodness of mankind, that isn't Psalm 53. It's flying in the face of Psalm 53. The Bible says that the plowing of the wicked is sin. Plowing? Yes. When you plow your field and you are thinking about making more money, you've sinned. When you're plowing your field and you don't thank God for creating earth, dirt, and soil, and earthworms to ventilate it, and sunshine to heat it, and clouds of rain to water it, you sin by not thanking your Creator. The plowing of the wicked is sin. The book of Proverbs teaches us that. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Well, what about the Eagle Scout that took off his coat and laid it in the mud puddle for the old lady to walk across? You don't know why he did that. He may have been doing it just to get a medal so that he would beat someone else out in his Boy Scout troop. Now, you want to tell me that's virtuous and righteous? The Lord sees all those things, and guess what? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and corrupts everything we do. And if you're not ready to admit that, we need to start over again and tell Matthew to get back up in the pulpit and go through Psalm 53 again. We are corrupt and abominable. That's what we get by our first birth. Oh, I love these words. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Do you know how much the man in verse 6, the first half of verse 6, can do for himself? We've already read chapter 1 and verse 13, which says that being born again is not of the will of the flesh. We're told in Romans chapter 8, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you're in the first half of verse 6, how are you going to get to the second half of verse 6? Are we going to manipulate some message? Are we going to use puppets this morning? Are we going to have some dance? Are we going to get Tim Tebow to come in here and blink his eyelids at us because he's put John 3.16 on his eyelids? How are we going to manipulate a man in the flesh to get him into the second half of John 3.6? There's nothing that can be done except for him to be born again. And that second birth is one of the Holy Spirit of the living God that gives man a living new nature that is entirely different from the flesh so that now the man has a warfare inside of him of the spirit 
lusting against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit so that he can't do anything perfectly. When he tries to sin, he can't enjoy it. When he tries to live righteously, he can't do it perfectly because he's waiting to be ripped out of this body and taken into heaven and then the body itself will be changed and reunited with him. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And it lusts, the two lust against each. When a man has the flesh, he doesn't have much of a lust going on because he doesn't have a spiritual new man inside him. But that happens when we're born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The first half of verse 6 is what Nicodemus suggested in verse 4. The second half of verse 6 is what Jesus answered with in verse 5. That's what we need, and that's what makes the difference. And then we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel to an audience that has men in the flesh that have only had one birth and men in the spirit that have had two births. Some laugh, some sleep, some doze, some are thinking about what they're going to do this afternoon, proving that they've only been born one time in the flesh. And that sweet aroma comes up into heaven and God says, you deserve to go to hell. You say, where's that found in the Bible? Acts 13, 46. Do you need a verse? Acts 13, 46. The Apostle Paul told the Jews that rejected his preaching, you have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they glorified the word of the Lord, rejoiced. The whole city came out to hear the Apostle Paul, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. What, who, what made the difference? The difference of John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But in a mixed multitude, in an audience like this, there are those that have been truly born again. They want to hear every word of God. They want to understand every word of God. They want to know the Son of God. They love the Lord Jesus Christ. They love to think upon His sufferings for them. They love to think upon His ascension to the right hand of God. They want to obey Him and live for Him. They want to tell others about Him. What made the difference? The spiritual birth of described in verse 5 under the symbol of water and the name of the Holy Spirit and repeated in verse 6, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, meaning not that we're become little holy spirits, but that we're spiritual men. We're natural men, we're spiritual men, depending on if we've had one birth or two births. You know, if we knew the time of our second birth, we could have two birthdays in a year. But since we don't, we don't. And don't suggest it, please. I just suggested it and shot it down. <laughs> Since we don't know, all we know is all of a sudden there was a change in me, and the change in me could have been one minute, one year, or one decade later from the Holy Spirit regenerating me. Verse 7. Oh, by the way, before I... Verse 6, if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm in trouble. That first birth from my parents really... It gave me an eternal spirit in the sense that I'm going to live forever and it gave me this corrupt body, how's the Lord going to take care of all that? Well, he regenerates you to give you a new spirit, a new man. And your spirit will go to heaven and be glorified in that new man and your old man, which is attached to your body, will remain here and disappear and your body will go into the ground, that corruptible thing, 
and then God's going to pull it out of the ground and glorify it and put it back together with your spirit, you'll have a glorified spirit, you'll have a glorified body, because 1 Corinthians 15.50 sounds so much like this, but it's talking about the body. It says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that, are you with me on the words? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, just like a wicked man only born once cannot see or enter the kingdom of God on earth. But the kingdom of God in heaven, we can't get into it as long as we have these stinking things that are corrupting every day. But the Lord's got it all covered. He gives us a new man, saves us, renews, cleanses and washes that spirit, takes it into heaven, leaves the body here, the body comes out of the ground, is glorified, put back together with our spirit in the air and taken into the presence of God forever and ever. Verse 7, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Nicodemus, don't be so surprised and shocked about something that you just heard you've never heard before. It's necessary in my religion that men are born again. That's what he is saying. Jesus here laid down a general axiom for all men to be saved. Not that Nicodemus was. I'll show you in just a moment from the grammar of this little sentence. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. In the religion of our Savior, in true Christianity, in Bible Christianity, we all have to be born again, given a new nature that is compatible with God to see and to enter His kingdom on earth to submit ourselves to the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be baptized sincerely, and to obey Him. And eventually, after that, to enter into heaven. All necessary upon our nature being changed, which we have called in the past for the sake of comparing it with other aspects of salvation, the vital phase of salvation. There's an eternal phase of God's purpose. There's a legal phase of Christ's death on the cross then we ourselves individually have to be changed, and that's the vital phase. Then there's the practical phase when we are informed about it and how well we obey that information. Then there's the final phase when we're completely glorified, body, soul, and spirit in heaven. This is dealing with the vital phase when we're talking about being born again. Some interpret this text from an Arminian perspective with this sense. Don't be shocked, Nicodemus, but you personally need to be born again to be saved. Now get down on your knees and repeat this prayer after me. That's how they understand that. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. You need to get born again, Nicodemus. That's from an Arminian perspective. We reject it. And then the hyper-Calvinist comes along with this sense. Do not be shocked, Nicodemus but you personally are already born again and saved. They read it, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. We read it this way, Marvel not that I said unto thee, in my religion, men must be born again in order to enter into and see the kingdom of God. Why do we make that choice? Because of the difference that we understand in plural and singular second person pronouns. It says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, because he's only meeting with one man, Nicodemus. Right. Don't be surprised 
about revelation that I've just given you that you've never heard before, Nicodemus. Ye must be born again. You Jews, you Jewish leaders, every man that is ever going to see the kingdom of God or enter into it has to be born again. It's a rule of my religion. It's a necessity of my religion. It's an ultimatum of my religion. If that new birth does not occur by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, you'll not enter in. It's a rule of my religion. It's an axiom of my religion. We understand it because ye is plural pronoun, so he's referring not to Nicodemus specifically. He's, he's giving a general rule about the Jews and about men. And, and you know, back in verse 3 it was, except a man. He wasn't giving Nicodemus Except you, Nicodemus, get born again. It's a man. It's men in general. If a man in general, if a man in specific isn't born again, he cannot see and he cannot enter. That's verse 7. I hope you understand it. Remember, in the two languages in which the Bible were written, Hebrew and Greek, the second person pronoun is distinguished between one person or two or more persons, plural. Ordinary English, if I was to say something in the second person to you, I would say you, and I'm looking at Titus, but I could be looking at Titus and say, you need to pay attention, and I could be referring to all of you, but I've used you for all of you, I've used you for one of you, and you can't tell the difference except by context, and then sometimes it can be very questionable. But in high English, your Bibles were written in high English, not Elizabethan English, high English. High English was a contract form of English that made a distinction between one or plural persons by T or Y pronouns. If it is a T pronoun, thee, thy, or thine, it's one person. If it's a Y pronoun, ye, your, it's a, plural, it's a plural number of people, two or more, being considered. That is just cool. Okay? Is that word good enough? You know, the young people know that I'm trying to make a change in my reputation with them. When they came to the youth meeting on Wednesday evening, I had a black, black monster drink out drinking it in front of them to show them that I could be cool at 59. The third one in my life. You walk in, young people, go to a Christian bookstore in Greenville and ask them if there's any difference between the King James Version and the New King James Version. They'll say the New King James Version is a whole lot better because it got rid of all those stinking these and thous. You mean, you mean it dumbed down the Bible so that I can no longer understand when one person or two people or more is being addressed? What do you mean? They don't have any idea. No idea. They hate the these and the thous. Even though when you ask them, what's the new King James based on? And why'd they come up with this Bible? It's based on better manuscripts. In what languages? Hebrew and Greek? Do Hebrew and Greek make a difference between one person and the second person? Or two or more? Yes. You probably have to explain that to him as well. But then what you're telling me is the new King James is really dumbed down King James. That's what I'm trying to say to you, sir. Ma'am. 
We love the these and the thous and the yees and the ors. Because you look at this verse, it's got both. Marvel not that I said unto thee, when did he say it to him? In verse 3, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye, meaning except a man, a general rule and proposition or axiom, except a man is born again, he's not going to see or enter in to the kingdom of God. Do you see that? I hope you do. Because it's time to go uh, to, to verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And by the way, you know, if you want to see more information about that seventh verse, it's available. It's coming. The little tiny outline on our first few verses of John 3, numbers 40 pages. It's coming. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Having told Nicodemus, you must be born again, men must be born again to see or enter the kingdom of God, the ultimatum, the fact, the necessity of it, he then explains how it occurs. And it occurs like the wind blows. The wind blows where it listeth. The word listeth is used one other time over in the book of James, chapter 3 and verse 4, and it means to, it's describing the governor of a ship that directs the ship wherever he listeth, meaning wherever he wants it to go. And the word listeth, by the dictionary definition, is to be pleasing to. I please, choose, like, care, or desire this way. It's the will. The wind blows wherever it wants to. The wind blows wherever it wills to blow. And that's what the word listeth means in the Bible. Jesus used a, an exact variant for what was done to John. They did whatever they listed to John the Baptist. They did whatever they wanted to John the Baptist. They killed John the Baptist. The wind bloweth where it listeth. That's wonderful. Didn't we already read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the Holy Spirit divides the gifts severally to men as he will? Haven't we read that all through the pages of Scripture, that salvation is according to the good pleasure of his will? Do we read also in Ephesians chapter 1, that he works all things according to the counsel of his own will? We love the will of God. We trust the will of God. We're dependent on the will of God. We praise the will of God. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. You don't know where the wind was first. You don't really know where it was when it got started. You don't really know where it's coming from in the sense of its origin. You may have known that it was in the next county before it got to your county, but you don't know where the thing came from. And you don't know where it's going after it leaves you. That's why these W words are of whence and whither refer to where. They refer to location. You don't know where the Holy Spirit is, and you can't direct the Holy Spirit. You can't pull him down from heaven and shoot him into some room. But every, all the evangelistic efforts that you see these days assume that. They, they wouldn't say that, but they do it by using all these manipulative efforts to get men in the flesh to do something. We have to depend upon the Holy Spirit of God. Then what can I do for my family? Pray for them. Right. 
The Bible tells us that we ought to live in such a way that when a man is visited by God, he already has recognition of the different life that we lived in front of them. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 tells us that. And Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 tells us that we ought to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Now, no man is going to glorify your Father which is in heaven by your good works unless he's been born again. They'll kill you for your good works until then. Or just dislike you and mark you. John 3, 8 is so beautiful. Holding your finger there, look at, look at Ecclesiastes 11. Let's just think about the, the wind and the rain and tree work for a few minutes. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. How many chicken littles do we have in here today? I'm going to pick on the chicken littles right now. You worry about everything. Why do you do that? Why do you worry about your children? Why do you worry about the weather? Why do you worry about our government? Why do you worry? Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 11, Cast thy bread upon the waters. That means disperse your money, especially in charity, for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, and also to eight. For thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. You don't know what's coming. Stop thinking about it. It's a waste of horsepower. You know, back in the day, if you were foolish enough to have air conditioning on your engine, back in the day, I'm talking about being a teenager, you know, before you did anything against somebody else sitting in their car next to you, you unhooked certain things like air conditioning, power steering, power brakes, because you didn't want any cables running off your horsepower. So that's why I just said, why are you wasting horsepower worrying about stuff that is out of your control? Why do you worry? Would somebody write me an email and explain how your worrying helped the situation? Your worrying corrupted everything. It corrupted you. It causes fear in those under you like your children if you're worrying all the time. Trust the Lord. He didn't say it's all in your hands. He said it's all in his hands. Anyway, back to Ecclesiastes 11. Give a, verse 2, give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. <laughs> Isn't that deep truth? And if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. You worried about falling trees? He that observeth the wind shall not sow. You worry warts, the chicken littles in here. You chicken littles that worry too much about the wind, you won't sow because every day there's going to be enough evidence on the weather channel for you not to get out there and get at it. You're going to look at your little child and put your hand on their forehead and lo and behold, the 98.6 is 98.7. And you're going to worry. They've got Zika. They've got Ebola. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. 
In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand. For thou knowest not whether shall prosper either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. Amen. Go to work, make money, disperse money. Trust God, who's going to determine whether one or both is good. You may get fired at your job, or you may get promoted. You may give to somebody who then comes back and gives double to you. You don't know what's going to happen. Just go do it because it's what God wants you to do and he'll take care of the rest. And this is a carefree way to live. You say, but what if I have a big oak tree that's tipping every year a little bit more until it's over my house and it's dead now? Cut it down. We're not talking about such oak trees. We're talking about the weather channel and your 98.7 temperature of your child and worrying about our government. Our government can't change anything. Any change that our government affects, God has already chosen that for us. Trust Him. We have got to get back to John 3. Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6 is truly precious. Lord, we want to live carefree lives, caring about You, loving You, instead of worrying. Worrying says you don't trust God. Worrying says you may not know God. Worrying doesn't help anything. Worrying messes you up. Worrying steals horsepower. And we want all of it. Because the guy next to you may not be worrying. You don't want to go to work as a worrier and have someone there that doesn't worry. I'm telling you, there's drama in every office. Remember all the drama in offices? People worrying about this, worrying about that, worrying about the government, worrying about promotions, worrying. As I like to exhort you young men, and I hope everyone understands what I'm about to say, you have two shrines in your backyard. One is to go into it and worship the Lord Jehovah. And the other is the shrine to pee, productivity. Go get something done. Don't worry. Get something done. Thank you, Lord, for John 3.8. How many men are born again this way? All of them. How many men are born again any other way? No one. No, not one. You hear the sound thereof, which is the effect, the evidence, or the results of wind, but you can't source it, you can't send it, you don't know where it's been, you don't know where it's going. What is the sound we can hear of the wind when we transfer that metaphor to being born again? What is the change in our lives that we should witness? I've been over this a couple of times with you. It was a couple of weeks ago when I asked you to read 1 John because 1 John says more things about how we ought to be changed by being born again than anywhere else. Sons of God, believe the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. Sons of God, love the brethren, especially the least of the brethren, for Christ's sake. Sons of God, do righteousness, for that's part of his character. Sons of God do not sin habitually due to the regenerate seed in them. How's that for a start? That's the leaves rustling, brethren. How do we know where the Spirit has gone? How do we know who's been born again? By these evidences, believing the gospel, loving the brethren, doing righteousness, not sinning habitually, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You're a loving person. You're a joyful person. You're a peaceful person. Love, joy, peace. 
Because the Holy Spirit is showing the effect of being born again in you, through you, and upon you. We can't tell anything else but by its effects. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Let's notice three things. First, the wind is sovereign and chooses to blow where it decides. Second, we don't know anything about its origin or its destination, and we can't affect it. Third, we only know where the Spirit's been by its effects. And that is what we started with this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when it says that the preaching of the Jesus Christ is a savour. It, it makes manifest what the knowledge of Christ is doing in two different kinds of people. Those that are perishing, they hate it and reject it, and it shows that they're not born again. Those that love it, embrace it, and obey it show that they are born again. That's all we can see. We can't direct that spirit. We don't try to. We wait upon God. We trust him for his great mercy. And we, we raise our probabilities as high as we can when we evangelize by going to places where there may be indications that men are born again and elect. Like Paul going to synagogues in Acts chapter 17. Like Paul enduring all things for the elect's sakes. Like Paul segmenting a chunk of Israel that he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, and we've been there before, that's Romans 10, 1 through 3, and now it's time for John 3, 9. Jesus answered and said unto him, Nicodemus answered, verse 9, Jesus has just said, So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. It's by the operation of the Spirit of God blowing when and where he wills upon whomever he chooses, and all you can see are the effects. And that's how everyone is born again. Nicodemus, I gave you seven verses telling you of its necessity. I gave you one verse of how it occurs. Nicodemus answered and said unto him in verse 9, How can these things be? Because he had never heard anything like this in his life. He had heard all about Moses' law. He had heard about tithing herb gardens. He had heard about Levitical food laws. He had heard about how bad those Egyptians were for eating pigs. He had heard all kinds of stuff, but he hadn't heard this. How can these things be? How can something this dramatic and this important be outside my knowledge? Because it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. But everyone that's ever lived was born again. Don't you think that being born again started the New Testament? What kind of nature do you think David had? That which is born of the flesh is flesh? Do you think God loved David's flesh nature? Or did God love David's spiritual nature? It just wasn't revealed. You know, the church was limited to one nation. And they'd never thought about it before. Because remember, they weren't measuring men so much by their fruits as by their minor surgery. Right? Weren't they measuring men by the minor surgery that those men had had? rather than by the fruits of their lives. So Nicodemus is saying, how can these things be? I've never heard this before. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Now this is a gentle rebuke. Are you telling me that after all your seminary degrees, you've never heard of this? And here I am, a carpenter's son from Nazareth, and I'm laying truth on you you've never heard before? Do you love the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ? I want you to love this truth. There's a lot of masters in Israel that say that we're a bunch of nuts. 
But all I want is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't care what they've thought up together. C.S. Lewis, are you kidding me? Do you want to read about the man's life? Young men, learn these words well. Art thou a master in Israel? And never be afraid of the masters in Israel. Learn it from Elihu's pain and anger of Job 32, of having to sit around and listen to those four men debate each other and not know what was going on. Learn it well, young men. Learn it from David's confidence in Psalm 119, who said that by having God's words and meditating upon them, he was wiser than his enemies, his teachers, and the ancients. It is shocking for young men as they grow up to find out that most professionals are ignorant even in their fields, but especially in the field of religion. Recall, young men, remember these words, art thou a master in Israel and knowest not these things? Recall, Jesus said, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. That is the Jesus of the Bible. Thanking God as he looks at his audience and realizes, disciples, why is it that all I've got is fishermen, publicans, and harlots in the church? Why can't we have some lawyers? Because, Lord, every time you say thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, They want to go pull out precedent cases for what a neighbor is, and they limit it to friends. Are you with me on this? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for hiding these things from the wise and prudent and revealing them to babes. I want to be a babe and leap right into verse 10 and say, I don't want to be a master of Israel, Lord. I just want to be your babe. Show me everything that you're willing to show me. Did you read 1 Corinthians 1 1 last night, verses 19 through 20, where it said God is going to destroy the wisdom of this world? He's made foolish the wisdom of this world. He mocks them. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Where are those that want to debate? Where are they? He mocks them. Let's not worry about the masters of Israel and knowest not these things. Verse 11, verily, verily, the third time in this third chapter, we get the double verily. Of a truth, it is certainly true. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know. We speak content and doctrine that we fully understand. And testify that content and doctrine we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. Verily, verily, beautiful, this this 11th verse. We should never apologize for our confidence in the certainty of the truth we believe. Nicodemus has said in verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus has responded in verse 10, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily. This is, there is no shortage to the confidence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there shouldn't be with us. 
We should do it respectfully, and we should wait our turn if we are young. But then we should give our opinion by the inspiration of God, as Job 32, 6 through 9 declares. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Nicodemus, you don't understand this, though thou art a master. We are simply teaching and preaching content that we understand. I want you to understand that word, no. Jesus was not saying, we go around preaching that we know. We go around preaching to tell you that we understand things. That word that is describing the content of the gospel. We speak that, that content, we understand. We testify content, we've witnessed with our own eyes. Remember that an apostle of Jesus Christ had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. The founders of our religion spoke from knowledge, not fanciful speculation. Our written Bible is more sure than God's voice from heaven. We never need to be afraid or ashamed of anyone. We see one-word arguments throughout the New Testament to build our confidence. We've hardly ever heard about them. But the Bible has many of them. This doesn't mean we would never change, but we need a tsunami of Bible proof to change. The founders of our religion spoke from knowledge, not fanciful speculation. John and Jesus had the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not seminary rabbis. They did not spout nonsense as other religions like Islam and Mormonism. When the church fathers often disagree, what can you assume about them? They're the masters of Israel, and they don't know these things. They come up with infant baptism, baptismal regeneration, and a legion of heresies. Ministers that talk about their feelings this way or that are not like the Lord Jesus Christ nor his apostles. Thus saith the Lord, because I'm supposed to preach the word. I'm not going to preach anything else. I don't have anything else to preach. You say, well, what about that car you were talking about? I'm sorry. I'm going to preach the word. See, it doesn't take long to correct me. Just say, was that preaching the word? I was illustrating a point that you're losing horsepower by worrying. Hate words like these. I have a dream. You are kidding me. That was from an ordained Baptist pastor. I have a dream. The Bible addresses your weakness, sir. It's addressed in Jeremiah 23, where it says, What is a dream compared to my word? My word is like a hammer and a fire. You say, I wish that you were like a, a pencil and a candle, preacher. Well, I want to be like a word, like a hammer and a fire, because God's word is supposed to be like a hammer and a fire. Hate these words. I believe in my heart. We don't want to know what your heart believes. That's the scariest thing we've heard all day. Even the newspapers won't print that. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Other preachers will say, some men have suggested, what? We don't want suggestions, and we, don't, we certainly don't want suggestions from men. A better rendering might be, that isn't the confidence of God's word. A better rendering? You mean there's various renderings, and it might be better, and it might not be better? Or how about this one? What does it mean to you, my brethren? Oh, I don't want to know what it means to me. I want to know what it means from the mouth and mind of God. 
Look at the confidence. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that, meaning we speak the content and doctrine of what we understand. We're not like you Jews. And testify that content and doctrine that we have seen. We have seen the content and doctrine and the events that we declare to you. We understand the content and the doctrine of the things we preach and teach to you. The founders of our religion were eyewitnesses of the things that they declared. If I turned you back to John chapter 1, John saw the Holy Ghost descend upon Jesus. He had had the Holy Spirit tell him inside, My son is the one that the Holy Spirit will descend upon and remain. I saw that Holy Spirit descend and remain. Do you know how certain our religion is? Told on the inside by God, and then God sends the Holy Spirit down on the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw and bore, and bore witness, this is the Son of God. Amen. The apostles witnessed transformation of men by Holy Spirit regeneration. They saw Nicodemus pop out of a tree all five feet, three inches of him, and say, Lord, if I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold, and I sell half my goods today to give to the poor. They saw that. That's the leaves rustling. Luke declared in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that he had been an eyewitness of the word and was declaring the certainty of the truth of the gospel to Theophilus. And the apostles had to be eyewitnesses to even become an apostle. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Jesus didn't mean carnal or worldly things here, but spiritual truth that pertains to this life. He had told him, you need to be born of the Spirit because there's a different part of man and that man needs, you need to have a spiritual new man in you. That, that's an earthly thing. It doesn't happen in heaven. There's no new birth in heaven. The new birth is on earth. And Jesus' doctrine was primarily about things on earth. And you don't believe me. What if I was to lay some real things on, real heavy things on you from heaven? We got to get started at the basics and the fundamentals. I've been gentle, I've used metaphors, I've used comparisons, and you still don't believe me. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man has the ability to believe the things of God without God's gracious work. Right. Jesus said in John 8, 47, he that, heareth God, he that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. We have to be of God to understand them. Jesus said that a man coming back from the dead would not help a single person. That is hard. Isn't that a beautiful statement? This is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he thinks of evangelistic efforts a man coming back from the dead would not be able to persuade an unregenerate man to do anything pleasing to God. Jesus told the rich man, by way of that story there in Luke 16, they have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers hear them. But they don't like going to church and hearing sound doctrine. They want to be entertained. Well, it wouldn't matter if I sent someone back from the dead to them then. If they don't like my word, then they're judging themselves unworthy of everlasting life. Doesn't that fit with 2 Corinthians 2? 
sever of death unto death or a sever of life unto life. If I've told you earthly things, how shall ye believe? If we cannot or will not believe the truth that God reveals to us, he'll blind us further. Let's believe everything he reveals to us. There are other circumstances and factors to hate that hinder us from believing. We're going to learn as we proceed through this Gospel of John that many of these Jews would not believe on Jesus because they were too conscious of what other people thought. The fear of man brings a snare, so you better fear God the most. The love of man brings a snare, so you better love God the most. Jesus said, if you don't hate, and then listed all the dear relationships in your life, if you don't hate in comparison to me, you cannot be my disciple. That is the religion of the Bible. Verse 13. Verse 12. Let me back up to get get a context for verse 13. Verse 12 is saying, If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If I was to get deep with you, Nicodemus, and the other Jews, and share real revelation, how in the world could you believe that if you can't believe the simplest instructions that I've given you so far that pertain to this life? Then he explains it this way. And no man hath ascended up to heaven. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. You masters of Israel, none of you have ever gone to heaven and come back down to bring any knowledge with you. You do not know of heavenly things. But there is one that has come down from heaven, and he's the Son of Man, and he is in heaven. That's present tense right now. Now, he he just laid a little heavenly thing on him. This is a beautiful verse. And I want you to love John 3.13. No man hath ascended up to heaven. I beg your pardon. What about Enoch? What about Elijah? They didn't come back down with any revelation from God. Well, what about Paul? He came back down, but uh, remember things unspeakable, and that by law he could not share. One man came down from heaven to bring us revelation and information that is unobtainable on earth. And he's the founder of our religion. He's the bishop of our souls. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is our Lord and Savior. He is our brother. He is not ashamed to call us brethren. And he has brought down information that is unknown to this world, even the most religious nation on earth with the most religious men of that nation did not understand and the masters of religion did not know what Jesus laid on them. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. There's so many things that could be said right here. No man can compare to the founder and teacher of our religion. All men are taught by one another, except one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul made the appeal in Galatians chapter 1 that when I was converted, I did not go to Jerusalem, the other apostles, to get my religion. 
I went into Arabia and was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ for three years. Then I came into Jerusalem. And I certify you, brethren, that the gospel that I preach, I didn't learn it from James, Peter, and John. I learned it from Jesus. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I delivered unto you that which also I received. Paul wasn't at the Lord's Supper, but Jesus told Paul exactly what happened at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and how the Lord's Supper was to be administered. The last clause of this 13th verse, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, those words are taken out of the NIV, the New Living Translation, the ESV, the New American Standard Bible, the Holman Standard Christian Bible, and so forth. That proof of the deity and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ is missing. Notice what he is saying to Nicodemus. No man hath ascended up to heaven. No one's gone to heaven and come back down with revelation and knowledge, doctrine, to convey to the world. But he that came down from heaven, speaking of himself, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Because the Lord Jesus Christ had a human nature, limited in space to the earth at this time, and a divine nature, which was in all places at the same time, because it was omnipresent. And he declares that to Nicodemus. He gives him a proof of his deity. The Lord Jesus, in 21 verses, did share a lot of things with Nicodemus. Very different from the last three verses of John chapter 2, where Jesus did not commit himself to some that believed on him because it wasn't with the same level of sincerity that we have with this Nicodemus. We're going to run into Nicodemus in chapter 7, and we're going to run into Nicodemus at the end of our Lord's life when he, with Joseph of Arimathea, begs the body from Pilate and buries our Lord Jesus Christ at the risk of his position in Israel. What a religion we have. We have a man that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe Jesus Christ's doctrine? His doctrine is the body of what he taught. Do you have a changed, thriving life to prove it? Only then are you born again with eternal life. Are you in his kingdom, baptized and under his reign, showing it that he's the Lord of your life? Are you living for your king? If not, repent. Believe. Get baptized and obey him who is worthy of all of your obedience, love, and affection forever. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.